Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to the X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. We have a special uh, episode today. Uh, we have the authors of Smarter Collaboration, a new approach to breaking down barriers and transforming work. First, Dr. Heidi Gardner is a distinguished fellow at the Harvard Law School and former professor at the Harvard Business School and a, a former McKinsey consultant and Fulbright fellow. Uh, she's the author of Smart Collaboration, How Professionals and Their Firms Succeed by Breaking Down Silos, which was a bestseller. And uh, she's been named by Thinkers50 as a next generation business guru. And uh, she's currently the co-founder of the research and advisory firm, uh, Gardner and Company. Her, um, her co-author is Ivan Matviak. Uh, an executive VP at Clearwater Analytics, uh, which is a cloud-based SaaS company uh, providing investment accounting and reporting analytics for investment management corporations, treasuries, institutions, and insurance companies. Uh, Heidi and Ivan, welcome to The X Factor. Thanks Thank so you. much for having us. Good to be here. So Ivan, let me start with you. How does a financial quant pair up with a uh, academic on a book about collaboration? Uh, it's a great question. Heidi and I have uh, done a lot of uh, research together in the past. We've actually written a couple of articles for uh, Harvard Business Review that uh, that were published uh, starting in the pandemic uh, and then recently. And, you know, I, I've always been excited by Heidi's research on collaboration. And I think we come at it from two slightly different angles, right? Heidi, very much from an academic angle, having done, you know, decades of research on this. Wait a minute. Are you calling me a nerd? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't use those words. Um, and me more from the practical angle, right? I mean, I've been uh, in business uh, running uh, various types of uh, companies, uh, particularly in the sort of financial technology space for years and thinking about how to apply the ideas of collaboration to uh, to business. So it was great fun working together to, uh, you know, bring both the academic and the practical side. And the book is very much focused on how to's, right? How do you implement the ideas of smarter collaboration? Okay. And uh, it, it just seems uh, an almost antithetical where, you know, both quants and academics are usually silent. You know, they just, you know, because, you know, because if in, in, in effect, I'm a, I'm an academic and I know how much I enjoy working alone, but recently I've been reaching out to people to collaborate. Uh, so I, I, I find that, um, you know, that, that pairing, your, your pairing really interesting because of exactly what you said, uh, the practical with the theoretical. And that's really where you get a great balance. So uh, Heidi, let's- Well, uh, let's... So Stephen, can I, can I jump in? I mean, our book is Smarter Collaboration, right? What we're trying to do is to get people with really differing perspectives to team up and tackle complex problems. And so I'd like to think that Ivan and I are a living example of what we put in our book. Right. So, yes, you know, we're we come at it from different worlds because I'm presently an academic and, you know, he's got the real world experiences, chairman of a software company and so forth. But beyond that, you know, we look at the world differently because of different life experiences that we've had as well. And this is the power of getting people to work together who do address problems from these different angles, because Ivan and I, as we were writing, were constantly seeing something that the other person had missed, or we were able to build on each other's ideas in ways that if we thought too similarly to one another, it, it wouldn't have been as powerful. And, and, and even the writing process, Stephen, was, was we, we tried a, a couple of different approaches. We yeah. started out writing together, where we would literally sit down for a couple of hours every day and write together. And it was working pretty well. And then we said, well, maybe it would be more efficient if we actually wrote separately. So Heidi, you go write something, I'll go write something, and then we'll pass it back and forth. Mm -hmm. That ended up being way less efficient and effective than actually just sitting down real time and collaborating. Because in some ways the passing back and forth was collaborating, but it wasn't as deep and as, and as intense as when we just did it together real time. That was a That process of writing the book was an eye-opener to me about just ways of engaging and collaborating uh, in real time that turned out to be hugely uh, effective and a lot of fun, actually. You know, that's uh, it, it, that approach worked for Lennon McCartney as well. 
Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So Heidi, let's let let's define collaboration. What you know, what is it? So when we talk about smarter collaboration, and, and Stephen, we're trying so hard to use that term smarter collaboration to distinguish what we mean from kind of run-of-the-mill teaming. And we're talking about a hyper-intentional process of starting with the end in mind. So what is it that we're trying to solve for? Are we trying to create something really innovative? Are we trying to peel back um, costs and, and develop something you know, far more efficient and streamlined? What is it that we're trying to tackle here? And then by dissecting it, say, whose expertise would be really valuable to crack that complex problem? And it allows people to be very deliberate about whom they involve and when, so that you get exactly the right kinds of experts and generational perspectives and life experiences coming in and enriching that problem solving, as Ivan was talking about, in real time, so that people can bounce ideas off each other and build on each other and, and criticize each other and challenge each other. And that kind of real-time collaboration is really vital if you want to develop the most sophisticated or tailored solutions to a tough problem. Because, you know, we can also define smarter collaboration as the inverse, you know, what it's not. Because it's not a soft skill. You know, that's a big mistake people make is thinking about it as, oh, it's just big group hugs, it's collegiality. And the fact is, if people are really worried about being harmonious and not having tough conversations, not challenging each other's ideas, it can stand in the way of the kind of smarter collaboration we're talking about. That's and, uh, and go ahead, go ahead, Ivan. No, I was just going to add on to that. It's and it's not easy, right? If if what you're doing is really bringing together people with diverse points of view, those points of view may conflict, right? You may not all be aligned, but if you can create an environment where people are comfortable in being themselves, right? And really bringing those ideas to the fore and challenging each other and really having healthy debate and challenge, that's when you really get to break through ideas, right? And break through solutions, but that's hard. And it's, I think it's particularly hard, you know, if I think about kind of a business context in particular, it's particularly hard when you're working with peers, right? It's, it's maybe easy if you're a manager with your team to have some of that debate and challenge. It's a big, it's a lot harder when you're working with people of equal status, right? And trying to have a, a productive dynamic in that environment. So, you know, the, I, the, the, the ideas are powerful, but the execution is, uh, is, is, is not easy. You know, I, what I see the, the you know, the real value of this book is that it's coming at a time, you know, where our country is divided, our communities are divided, even our families are divided. And the skills that, you know, that people can learn from this book based on how to collaborate with others, uh, you know, in, 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 in a way that reduces conflict, not actually generates conflict. And I'm wondering, you know, you know, how would you suggest to people uh, or what 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 would be your suggestions really, you know, that, that would help eliminate the conflict or at least reduce it so you can come to a, not just a common solution, but the best solution? Yeah, I mean, so if I can push back a little bit and maybe I can demonstrate what we're talking about here, we're not talking about reducing conflict. We're, re we're talking about increasing one kind of conflict and decreasing another. Because what we want is to increase the sort of creative tension and that friction between ideas, but we want to keep the conflict focused on the content. So, you know, I want you to disagree with my ideas as much as you can in order for us to reach something more solid or more innovative or better together. But we need to make sure that when you are challenging my ideas, I understand and trust that you're coming at it from the right place, that you're doing it to really pressure test the ideas and you're not doing it to undermine my authority or make me look stupid in front of the peers or, you know, I really have to believe that you, you have the best intentions and that requires a huge level of interpersonal trust. And so, you know, Ivan, maybe I can throw it over to you to, to give, you know, an example of 
when you've seen people be able to disagree with one another in a, you know, in a business meeting, for example, and then walk out of the room and, you know, high five somebody and say, hey, thanks for that, as opposed to, I can't believe you said that to me. Yeah, I, I think I can think of lots of examples of it, but, you know, more, um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Heidi, when you talked about having that foundational level of trust, right? When people believe that you have the best intentions for the group, right? And that, you know, people naturally have, they come from different places. They come from different experiences, different backgrounds. They're going to come to the table with different points of view uh, on any topic. Um, and by getting those points of view out on the table and having a, a healthy discussion um, that is, to your point, focused on the, the task at hand or the outcomes, right? And supportive of the people in the room. And again, I, back to the point I made earlier about creating an environment where people feel comfortable and safe to raise those ideas, right? And and valued for those ideas, even if somebody doesn't necessarily agree with it, right? Then you create that kind of trust in an environment where people can speak up and have that healthy, you know, debate and challenge, and hopefully, to your point, walk out of the room. Uh, you know, all feeling good about having pushed things forward together. Yeah. So the, yeah, so, so that psychological safety is mm. absolutely required. And, but here, here's the thing is that, you know, by human nature, we are social animals. Okay. So the question comes is why do people need to be empowered to collaborate, what has filtered into the organization or into our society where we have, you know, where, where we've actually lost psychological safety and now we have to build it back up? What, what, what happened? I think there's a whole range of things. Ivan, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say psychological safety is, I think, one element of that that can create a barrier to collaboration. Um, but there are, you know, our research shows that there are you know, a number of barriers that can exist in an organization that can limit uh, the organization's tendency to collaborate. Um, compensation systems and uh, performance systems are a common example where people feel incented uh, and recognized for independent work, going it alone, personal results, as opposed to um, feeling rewarded for uh, sharing in success, right? And working together toward, um, you know, toward toward the organization's objectives. Um, so that the whole, and there's a whole chapter in the book on structuring um, performance systems and reward and recognition in order to, uh, enhance the organization's tendency to collaborate. In fact, we also, there was a, an HBR article that came out uh, in October uh, that also uh, talks about that. Um, you wanna to touch on some of the other examples, Heidi, of other barriers? Sure, I mean, I'm, I'm working with an organization right now that's actually done a decent job of re-engineering re their performance management system to do the kinds of things Ivan is saying, you know, reward people for the longer term goals and the collective outcomes, as well as keeping in enough focus on individual accountability that people really deliver. And so they got the system structured right, and it still didn't work. And so they were really scratching their heads saying, you know, okay, now what do we do? And the fact is you can't just engineer your way into this kind of an environment. Um, the, you know, the, what McKinsey would have called the hard S's are part of it, but you also need a couple of other things. In this organization, we found out that the skills were lacking. And so people didn't have confidence in their own capabilities to engage with each other in this constructive, productive way. And they also didn't have the capabilities needed to talk with their clients about bigger business issues. So they were coming in, you know, in their field as these sort of technical experts, and they were wildly comfortable when they could be the smartest person on the room in a really narrow subject. But what they weren't comfortable doing is opening up strategic conversations or bringing in 
factors like, you know, inflation's rampant right now. What's that going to do to customer behavior? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they're saying, well, hey, I'm not an economist. I can't possibly have that discussion with my client. Well, if you can't open up broader business discussions or, you know, more strategic conversations, it's unlikely that you're going to create opportunities where you can bring other folks to the table. Um, and, you know, if, if all you think and talk about is in your lane, um, your narrow band of expertise, you're not really going to find opportunities to engage with these people who, like Ivan said, necessarily come with a very different point of view. And so, you know, we told that company actually that it was good news. You know, we said, hey, you've done some of the really hard things of getting your performance management system and your KPIs lined up. But now, you know, what you're lacking is skills. And these kinds of skills are entirely learnable. And uh, and, and so there's a, a clear path forward for that organization in terms of getting their people up to speed. Yeah, I was actually speaking with a um, uh, an executive uh, search consultant yesterday. And he was saying that, you know, on the very top of the uh, of the organization, they want to know what's going on. They want to know what the market's doing, right, in, in terms of hiring. But, you know, people in the middle, they're less likely. They just say, well, I got my job and I'm, I'm happy here. And, you know, it kind of goes against, you know, this this aspect of human nature, right? It's just what you said is that, you know, people want to know this right but somehow they get siloed into their lane and i'm wondering you know uh what are some of the ways you know because you know if you're growth oriented you want to you know you, you know you're good at what you do then let's start expanding not so much into what other people do but at least what they know and so sharing that intellectual capital i would i would imagine could only benefit not only them and their career but in their current job performance at that time so I wonder, you know, what are some of the barriers and we, we spoke about this you know incentives you know people do what they're rewarded to do now that's a that's a primary function of of, of human behavior so what can leaders do to incentivize their people to collaborate to you know to get out of their lanes you know a couple of that you're, you're spot on and um a, a couple of things that came out of our research one and you reference the leaders, right? Is that tone from the top, right? Mm -hmm. One key factor is having leaders who communicate to the organization that collaboration is important, that it's expected, right? And, you know, oftentimes leaders tell stories uh, about successes within the business, right? They'll stand up at a town hall or something like that and they'll, they'll tell a great story. Oftentimes that story is about an individual, you know, Jane went and did something phenomenal for the organization, right? Well, what if rather they went and told the story of the team, right? That worked together, that broke down those silos, that collaborated across groups, right? And did something that they couldn't have done, you know, as individuals. So a part of this is that tone from the top, the storytelling, what do you focus on in the messaging to, in the organization? Is it about individuals or is it about, um, examples of collaboration and teamwork and collective success. So that's one example. How do you want to take another? Yeah. And I think, you know, people will kind of roll their eyes and be like, oh, that's soft. But culture is made of stories and everyone knows how important culture is. So totally get that um, that culture building and tone from the top is absolutely essential. And then, Stephen, to your point, it does have to be backed up by the way people are rewarded. Because nothing creates a cynic faster than leaders saying they want collaborative behavior and then paying people all their bonuses based on individual heroics. Um, and so, you know, in the article that Ivan and I wrote in HBR recently, we laid out this four-part scorecard, as we also talk about it in the book, of course. And one of the um, ca categories that people need to be evaluated on and rewarded for is the big strategic goals that cut across organizational silos. So we use the example of a tech company where in the, the bad old days, you had salespeople who were incentivized to sell as much as humanly possible in, you know, each quarter. Um, the install team who were in there putting the software in place, and they were incentivized to do these things as fast as possible and install as much as they could to keep up with the salespeople. And then you had customer service reps who were 
um, measured on how many calls they took per hour. I mean, there was zero in there that um, A, focused on the strategic outcome of customer satisfaction, or B, had people thinking about the implications of their actions on the next stage of the process. And so we broke it down and, and, and showed how by changing the scorecard, what were people actually measured on? And by getting all three of those departments focused on customer satisfaction, it really radically changed behaviors for the better. You know, I started my career in athletics and there's something really special about a group of people coming together, you know, to pursue a common goal and then go through the hardships of accomplishing that goal. And then not only matching that goal, but exceeding that goal. And those bonds that, that form are lifelong because it was bigger than them. And, you know, to get back to the, you know, to the human nature part, we are social animals, we want to work with each other. And so how can we, you know, basically get out of our own way? Because it's, you know, we're, 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 we want to do this. And the incentives are one thing. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 I see it, and but I, I actually worked with a, a sales organization. Right, they they were all siloed, right? But when they, you know, when 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 they uh, beat uh, monthly records, quarterly records, and the annual record for revenue, there was a sense of community that they never experienced before. Yeah, you know, yeah. so there there is this community uh, uh, communal aspect of this that we all we have a basic desire, basic need for. Right. And but it seems like somewhere along the line, either through our education, maybe through the, you know, the, the, the way, you know, going back to school. Right. And how we're evaluated. We're not evaluated on how well we work with each other, except in kindergarten. Mm. OK, but since then, it's all about, you know, how how we were great, you know, what our grades are in this class and nothing is ever, you know, there's no input from, you know, from our group projects, basically. Right. And we always know that there's somebody in the group who, who isn't pulling their weight. Right. So, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, in that, you know, in, in your book, you know, to 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 collaborate in a really smart way, is there a way to make this simpler rather than more complex? You know, if I think about that team that you talked about, right? That, that, that sports team that came together and, you know, gelled and, and, and had success at the end of the season, they probably learned a couple of things, right? They probably learned to the point that Heidi raised earlier, some interpersonal trust, right? They developed some trust. They got to know each other better. They trusted each other's intentions, right? And that they were all working for the same goal of winning the game and, you know, and doing well in the season. There's another type of trust that they probably developed, which is competence trust, right? They began by working together to know what each of them was good at, where their weaknesses were, right? And how to get the best out of the team. Um, and, so, and so those are two key ele trust elements, right? In, in terms of having effective collaboration in an organization. The challenge, one of the challenges is that those things take time and investment to develop. So, you know, one of the other barriers to effective or smarter collaboration, right, is <clears throat> the fact that there's this upfront investment required, which takes effort, right? You may say, you may have a project in front of you, Stephen, and you say, you know what, I, I can just do this thing quicker. And maybe you can on day one. I just do it myself, right? Why do I need to bring anybody else in? I'm just going to do it myself. You might not get the best answer that way, but you might get it done quicker, right? Whereas, Seeking out another person who maybe you have to figure out who that person would be, negotiate, you know, when you're going to meet with them, how you're going to share the work, right? That's a, there's some upfront investment in that process, right? Hopefully. But what we see in the research is that once you start to do that more and more, the investment goes down over time because you're working with more people, your networks are developing, right? You know who to work with, you know where the skills are in the organization, you know who to reach out to. Um, and the rewards start to climb, right? And so you get this inverse where the, the cost goes down and the benefits start to go up substantially. But there's a, there's a gap at the beginning in terms of the cost versus the reward of that collaboration. And you've got to have 
the fortitude and, 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 and the incentive systems and the tone from the top to get people over that barrier initially and get them collaborating so that those curves invert, right? And that the, and that the rewards are greater and the cost is increasingly lower of actually executing on that collaboration. And yeah. Ivan, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, one thing that is striking to me is to, in today's work environment where you've got a lot of hybrid working or remote working, it's even harder for people to build that kind of interpersonal, even competence trust. Yeah. Because, you know, there's so many people I talk to now who've joined companies and have never, ever met their coworkers face to face. And, you know, that is the remote work strategy, the hybrid work strategy that benefits a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But I think what we're sacrificing is that very human nature, Stephen, that you keep bringing us back to, which is how do I really look somebody in the eye, not mediated by a camera and a screen, but look them in the eye and understand where they're coming from. And the the rapport and the the nature of our interactions is just different when we don't have a chance to be in person. You know, because it's not oftentimes what happens in the meeting that allows us to get to know each other. It's what happens as we're walking out of the meeting and we have five minutes to debrief as we're walking down the corridor and saying, wow, like, you know, think about what just happened or did you see his expression or what did she mean when she said, right? It's that kind of interpersonal, informal dialogue and, and exchange that allows us to get to know people beyond the formal agenda. And that's really missing for a lot of people these days. And so hybrids thrown up a lot of additional barriers to collaboration that weren't as prominent for a lot of organizations previously. You know, Heidi, I, um, I'd like to get your input on this is that, you know, in my research and, uh, and practice, I find really smart leaders do exactly what Ivan said. Well, it's just quicker if I do it. Right. And they, they start the silo practice right there, but the really smart leaders, all right. They, they, they have a sense of humility is that, you know, if I reach out to others and build consensus and get their input, I'll end up with a better solution. I'll end up with a better product, a better service, whatever, whatever problem they're trying to solve. Right. And so one of the things I learned is that you can get, you know, modest gains when you try to push the mean, right? Make, make, make me mediocre or lousy people just a little bit better. But when you take, you know, the best people, right? And you make them even better, maybe maybe through collaboration or whatever technique that you use, right? That puts a um, uh, uh, almost like an invisible type of pressure on that mediocre performer because once those top performers move forward, right? Then then the mediocre people are going to naturally move forward because they're always going to stay mediocre, but they don't want to fall below average. That's the fear. Okay. And I'm wondering if you've seen that in your research or practice and same, same with you, Ivan. Well, I, I think what I've seen is a little bit different. I mean, on the one hand, yes, you take the rock stars and supercharge them and, you know, turn them into absolute front runners. But what we've seen is the power of smarter collaboration to unlock incredible potential from that big group in the middle, because what you're not asking them to do is to be rock stars at everything. What you're saying is you don't have to be great at everything. You have to define what you're brilliant at and then surround yourself with people who are brilliant at other things. And so I think why a lot of people are considered mediocre performers is they're judged on a vast range of different capabilities and knowledge domains and, 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 and by definition, they're not going to be great at everything. What smarter collaboration allows people to do is play to their strengths. And when you get people in that large, you know, part of the bell curve to figure out what their real strengths are and you design systems that allow them to play to their strengths, to surround themselves with people who have differing strengths and to harness everyone working closer to the top of their game, that unleashes potential that most organizations don't even realize they have. Yeah, that is such a great point because what I see, you know, what you're talking about is talent optimization yeah. right? and maximizing potential and potential, you know, 
we don't know anything about potential. We don't know how to measure it. We don't know how to predict it. And we know the only thing we know is nobody's ever maximized it. Right. But the, you know, mate, you know, to pair up, you know, a high performer with a mediocre performer, you know, it's it's like dancing. Is that a good dancer when they dance with me, they don't dance very well because I don't dance because I I'm I'm horrible. Okay. All right. I'll just bring them down to my level. All right. But I'll dance a little bit better because I'm dancing with a really good dancer. Right. But when people of what we what what some people would assume to be of different ability levels, right? well, actually, they'll draw, you know, that that high performer will draw out that potential of what we think are mediocre performers. But there's actually not hidden potential. It's there. It just it, it just hasn't been developed and been given the opportunity. Or, or 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 deployed in the best possible way. I mean, you, you know, presumably you recruited someone because you thought they had something special that you wanted in your organization, right? And I've seen multiple examples recently of people in my organization that were perceived to be middle of the road in the job that we were doing, that they were doing. And we sat down and we talked to them, you know, are you in the best place? Are you in the best role given your skills and capabilities? And in many cases, we realized, no, we move them to something else, a different type of role that more fit their passion and their skill set, and they end up thriving, right? So I think you're spot on that there's that there's there's real value in kind of mentoring and, and having, you know, people who are stars at something, connecting with people who are maybe learning how to do something. But there's also, to Heidi's point, how do you how do you deploy people in a way that takes advantage of their skills and their strengths that they have? And oftentimes I think people are just maybe not in the right place or not being used in the best possible way. And, and the idea of smarter collaboration, just to repeat what Heidi said, is putting people in a position where they can use the strengths that they have in the context of a group. And that that, that does though require, again, some investment to understand what the skills are within the organization. Because another barrier to collaboration is often, frankly, a lack of understanding of what the skills are in the team. You know, Heidi and I may be working together for a year. I may not know what she did over the prior 10 years, right? And all the skills and capabilities that she's developed. I know, I know her in the context of her current job. Doesn't mean I know everything that she's able to bring to the table. And that la that's systemic in many organizations, right? There's really a lack of knowledge and understanding about the capabilities and where they reside in the organization. And it takes some effort to seek that out, to help the organization understand where the skills are, and then start to deploy them effectively in these types of teams that we're talking about. So to get nitty gritty and tactical here, maybe embarrassingly pragmatic from an academic, um, you know, one of the things that we have people do when they're in, you know, our executive programs or, or working with them, we ask them to make sure they've honed their elevator pitch. And I tell you, there is nothing that makes somebody look more like one of our teenage daughters in reaction than telling them that because it's like the, oh, oh, God, I'm so good at this already. Like, how dare you tell? But but. At the end of the day, when we put people in the situation where we have them think about what's, what's the elevator pitch, not to your customer to have them buy more from you, but to your colleague so they know exactly when to ring you up versus anyone else in the company. And people are like, oh, hang on, wait. And so we get people to think about what is it that makes your skill set uniquely valuable in your company? And you know what are what are you passionate about? What how do you add value? And hang on, like you've just tried it. We have them try it once without too much direction, and they kind of fall flat because they fill it with jargon and acronyms and buzzwords, and nobody outside their specialty knows. Wait, when would I when would I call them? What? And they and they and go so, on for five minutes. Like <laughs> totally right. Yeah, and so it's like, what's the what's the thirty second version of when somebody should pick up the phone and call you? And Getting people to hone that goes a long way in addressing what Ivan was saying about people not knowing each other's skill sets and things. The other um, incredibly valuable technique that was advocated by Dr. Richard Hackman, who passed away 10 years ago, but is still known as the godfather of groups and teams research, he, um, he pioneered and measured a very, very, very straightforward way of helping to get past this problem which is a, a team launch or a team kickoff. 
and and uh, and and Richard Hackman measured this in incredibly volatile situations. He was working um, after the 9/11 Commission. He was working with the NSA and the FBI and the CIA, all these government agencies, to try to get them to work better together so that you wouldn't have a repeat of the 9/11 where you had vital information trapped in agency silos. And he he figured out how to get in a very punchy, effective way new teams to to launch that project team effectively and have the conversation about here's what we're trying to accomplish and here's what every single person on this team brings to the party and here's how we think that's going to optimize our team's use of that expertise and um you know and he could measure within these you know terrorist simulations that they were running teams that had an effective launch like that were 30% more effective you know, and we're not talking about taking a new team away to the mountains for a three-day, you know, offsite. We're talking about spending 20 minutes when a new member joins the team to say, what are you bringing? Why are you specifically on this team? How do we engage with you in ways that draw out your expertise? Um, you know, how do you want to work? Those are the kinds of things that people need to know about each other. And it makes people so much more effective, but in their race you know, and sense of urgency to get stuff done, those 20 minutes feel like an investment we can't make, which is total nonsense. And, and you know what, just one other related thought, that's, a, that's really important when you're kicking off new teams. It's also actually really important to do periodically on longer projects. Oftentimes you have new team members come in, other team members roll off, and that kind of refreshing of what's our role on the team, right? What expertise are we bringing? How are we working to bring the best out of the group is, is actually a really healthy exercise to do periodically, at, you know, particularly for teams that are maybe working on projects that might span, you know, months or years. Definitely. I guess, and Ivan, you know, as, as I'm listening to you, the other thing that I'm thinking about is some of the prescriptions we have in the book for doing that for third party relationships. You know, it's one thing to think about doing it with an internal team, but as we saw as we were uh, putting the book together, so many examples of organizations in the same ecosystem working together, and those relationships need to be sustained as well. Um, and getting people in, you know, whether it's a, you know, supplier and a buyer relationship, or whether it's, you know, two actual competitors working together to, to figure out some common platform issue that's going to benefit the industry, so many different kinds of third party relationships that span years. And those relationships can go stale or fizzle out. And the kind of refresh that we were just talking about is absolutely vital to make sure those stay at the top of the game, too. So, Heidi, either in your research or your review of Dr. Hackman's research, has a, a, a personality profile or a character profile been established uh, regarding people who are more inclined to be collaborative and, and people who are less likely to be collaborative? Boy, am I glad you asked that. That is such a misconception in, um, in, you know, in the work that we do. People assume that you need to be the like life of the party, you know, lampshade on the head kind of, woohoo, you know, in order to build these positive and productive networks that lead to great collaboration. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So for anyone who's an introvert out there, we want to give you, you know, huge assurance that you can be as brilliant at smart collaboration as, you know, the, the life of the party folks. You know, we developed a psychometric tool that measures people's collaborative tendencies. And there's seven different dimensions. I won't bore you with the stats that went behind this, but we know there's these seven independent dimensions. Um, four of them relate to the kinds of problems you want to work on, and, and three of them relate to the way you work with other humans in solving those problems. But to give you an example, one of them is um, complex or concrete, right? Mm -hmm. So you could be a complex thinker. You love big abstractions, and you see I don't know, connections where nobody else sees them. So you think big, big, big picture. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is a concrete thinker. They ask the awkward, like, how's this going to happen? What's the deadline? Action plan, da, 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 da. And what we see is that neither one of those kinds of profiles, the extreme, is better for collaboration. What's better is for people to know where they are and how to use that tendency really well when they overplay it, and especially how do they 
not just grudgingly accept, but lean into somebody who is really different from them. Because yeah. Stephen, just on, on that one dimension, we, we often see people really just hate working with somebody who's so different from them, right? The, the complex thinkers think they're so superior because they only think big thoughts, right? And they look down their noses at the mundane people and the mundane people, the pragmatists are like, come on, man, like, when are we going to get started on this? And, uh, and learning, uh, just revealing on that one dimension where somebody lies, where, where their natural, you know, go-to responses and helping them understand when that's really productive and how to work with people who are different helps to, you know, helps collaboration enormously, especially like on the innovation side. Imagine, imagine you had a team that was full of those complex thinkers, right? They'd probably come up with all of these wonderful ideas and nothing would ever get executed, right? <laughs> or the other end of the spectrum, you have a bunch of concrete thinkers. Yeah, they can execute, but they may never come up with that breakthrough idea. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a, it's a nice example of needing where those complementary skills come together. And, it, and and you need people on both ends of those if you're going to have a really high power team. Absolutely. And, you know, and we've gosh, I mean, we, we didn't just run the numbers. We tortured the data. I mean, we had these massive data sets where we measured all these dimensions on all these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And then we had performance data. And we could not find correlations between any dimension and collaborative performance or between any combination of dimensions. It just doesn't exist. What makes somebody better at smarter collaboration is to really be reflective about what their natural tendencies are and where and when and how to deploy them effectively and to value people who are really different. So, you know, the, the good news is anybody can become brilliant at this. I think the bad news is not that many people think about it and make the effort. Yeah. You know, as an, uh, as somebody who, you know, has their own, uh, um, psychometric instru instrument. I would love to hear all about this and get into the data and dig into it. I find that I find it all fascinating. But in fairness to the listeners, I doubt if there's many people out there who want to go that deep. <laughs> we'll take that one offline. Exactly. Exactly. Geek out another day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, um, so what does collaboration look like inside the organization and outside the organization? And is it any different? Yeah, I think um, in principle, you know, because we're talking about humans, we're talking about a lot of um, a lot of similarities here. Um, but you know, Ivan, I know you've done a huge amount with alliance management and 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 partnerships, so you're more of an expert here. I guess the one thing I would say is that foundationally, that trust is absolutely essential. And one of the barriers that sometimes um, organizations need to, to overcome is the not invented here problem, or, you know, maybe even more the hang on, I don't want it to be invented over there problem. The, you know, how could we possibly let our rival, um, engage with us and, you know, and, and maybe have them take some of the credit away. I think that can be a real challenge inside organizations. Maybe let's, maybe let's back all the way up for a second, right? One of the, if we think about kind of macro dynamics, right? People are becoming more specialized in what they do, right? If you want to be really deep in your area, you need to go, you know, increasingly deep. And that is almost by definition, increasingly narrow, right? Mm -hmm. But the problems that we have are big and complex and ambiguous. And so you need different types of expertise, right? To come together to create these teams that we're talking about, right? That's what's happening on the individual and, and, and team level. The same thing is happening at the corporate, at the organizational level, right? For my company, software company, if we want to be phenomenal at what we do, we're not going to try to tackle every type of software that's out there in the market. We're going to be really good and strong at a, at a deep area. Mm -hmm. But that means that in order to give the end customer what they want, we may need to partner with other organizations. We need, need to partner with other software companies. We may, or maybe we need to partner with, you know, developers outside who have expertise in doing, you know, artificial intelligence, for example, right? We can't be expert at everything that we want or that the end customer wants at the corporate level either, 
right? So in the same way that you need to bring individuals together with different expertise, right, to really serve the customer, you often need to bring organizations together with different expertise. And that's where that, 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 that partner, that strategic partnering becomes really critical. You know, that was evidenced by the uh, entertainment industry. Uh, Pre-streaming is that, you know, collaborators were also competitors. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and ultimately it brought a better product, you know, to their, to their customers. I mean, yeah. nobody, nobody does entertainment like America. Yeah. That's it. But Stephen, you know, one of the things is that um, you often have leaders who try to rally their troops by vilifying the competitor. You know, let's go, you know, and, and you know, some of the things that we hear leaders say about the competition is really cringy. Um, you know, I mean, they, they personalize it and they vilify the competition. And then, you know, a month later, they're saying, hey, we should team up with those guys to whatever, influence regulation or crack, you know, some industry level problem or serve the customers like Ivan was talking about. And everyone's like, wait, you know, the folks over there that you just said were so untrustworthy and evil and now we're teaming up with them. Um, and so, you know, we ask leaders to be really thoughtful about what they call oftentimes healthy competition, mm -hmm. you know, or the win at all costs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not going to step into the political realm here at all, but I think, you know, the idea of toning down the rhetoric and being respectful of people, whether they're your direct competitor or whether they're the regulator you don't like or whether, you know, whoever it is, I think the leaders have a, a sheer responsibility at this point to be respectful and dignified in how they're talking about other people because you never know when you're going to need to team up with them. Well, I think the electric uh, electorate has made that clear in the most recent election is that uh revenge politics is is not really what the you know the voters are looking for they want people to work together to get stuff done right yeah, yeah. and and having a uh, split congress is the perfect opportunity for it Let's so. see. Let's see. Maybe, you know, if, if we uh, if we have anyone out there with a direct line to our uh, to our elected officials, maybe we can get them to start thinking about, you know, what is it that we're really trying to do? And how do you how do you start with that end in mind and figure out? I mean, God, it's a perfect example in politics, right? You have people who are coming out of problem from wildly different belief systems. But if you are able to engage with each other in a constructive way, I bet we'd come up with innovative solutions, you know, whether it's on the legislative side or anywhere else that none of those parties could do on their own. Agreed. And uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that I think that was the original purpose of the, of the founding fathers is to have a collaborative environment and yeah. set up the constitution, I believe to have that. It's all about consensus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the difference between a democracy and authoritarian regimes. Yeah. And we, you know, and 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 it's coming back to one of the topics we covered earlier. The whole point is to have really tough debate. Mm -hmm. It's not to paper over the cracks. It's not to pretend we all agree with one another. It's not even to reach premature consensus. It's to have really, really tough battles about the ideas but to do so in a way that draws out the constructive side of this. You know, we might believe really, really different, um, you know, we have very different belief systems, but if we can work together on the problem, genuinely understanding that our intentions are to solve the problem and not to grandstand or undermine the other person, mm -hmm. that goes such a long way. Yeah, yeah I, I, go ahead, go ahead, Ivan. Sorry, Steve. I, I just because you know, I think one of the data points that I thought was really interesting in our research was we looked at uh, um, innovation and patents. Oh, yeah. um, and if you look at you look at the patent data over the last forty years, yeah, individual patent grants have dropped by fifty percent over the last forty years. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are fewer and fewer individuals who are able to, you know, innovate to the point that they get a patent. Whereas you look at seven-person patent teams, it's grown tenfold over the last ten over the last forty years, right? So you, you just see this major shift in um, 
solo patent work up to, uh, you know, real team-based work up to, you know, seven plus person teams. I just thought it was a great example, uh, a real practical example of how in order to solve these big complex problems that result in something like a patent, you really need to bring a broader set of expertise together to work on these problems. Absolutely. And, you know, that data set shows the numbers, right? So you have more and more, you know, proportionally, the bigger teams are becoming a more prominent force in the innovation space. And other research that, you know, we can draw on shows that it's not just bigger is better, better is better, right? When you get a better team together, a more diverse team, it's not just that they're more likely to get a patent, but that patent is more likely to be a powerful one. It's more likely to be cited many, many, many times. Mm. And that's true in you know the, the innovation space in patents. It's also true in, in domains like Broadway shows. You know They're far more um, likely to stay alive for a longer period of time, to win more awards, to earn more money at the box office if you have a founding team that's coming from really different backgrounds. And so once again, that diversity of perspectives really energizes and creates something powerful if the people working together can harness it. And, you know, it's it's clearly seen uh, how, you know, CEOs can benefit from instituting, you know, a collaborative climate in, into their organization. But, you know, as you well know, they need tools and, uh, that's why I think this book is so important. So, uh, you know, the more people get it, uh, the more people read it, the more people learn from it, uh, the more people use it, I think will would have a um, an exponential effect on uh, organizational performance. So uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to thank both uh, uh, Heidi and Ivan uh, for joining me on the uh, X Factor today. Um, please, uh, 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 she is Dr. Heidi Gardner of Harvard, and he is Dr. I'm sorry, Ivan Matviak of Clearwater Analytics, and they are the authors of Smarter Collaboration, a new approach to breaking down barriers and transforming work. You can get it at wherever you get your books. So uh, I want to thank everybody for listening and thanking. Uh, I want to thank uh, specifically Heidi and Ivan for joining me today. So uh, again, uh, my name is Dr. Stephen Long, and this has been The X Factor, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, Stephen.